Hi, this is Jeff Elton, and welcome to the Concert AI podcast. With no further ado, let me move over to some of the conversation with Marissa Coe and Galen Ritter. So I'm hearing you say studies have great diversity, even in study design. There can be myriad factors, find five, ten different factors that could be contributing to it. But what's in the background, almost how you started, is there's a design problem here. And, you know, this almost goes back to your digital meets workflow and different things in life sciences. So maybe what we'll do is we'll use that as a bridge instead of kind of looking at current state, looking backwards, we'll actually now kind of take a little shift and we'll kind of look forwards at some of this. And so, Galen, I want to go back to this term digital because digital has been used for a number of major business transformations through the years, you know, over the course of the last decade, and BMS is now assigning this to the DACT or Digitally Accelerated Clinical Trials. And I guess part of it is maybe you can give DACT some definition here a little bit. What makes it digital in the sense of differentiated kind of workflows and things of that nature? How is it differentiated from some of the more traditional technologically based approaches that's there? And any of these transitions, these are not for the faint of heart, if you will. They're, they're complex things to pull off. They sit in organizations that have perfected legacy operations and try to get there. And you're going into sites that also, as much as they don't like the complexity of the current state, they've accommodated aspects of the current state. So what gave BMS the confidence to or compelling rationale to kind of go into this? In terms of DACT and digitally accelerated clinical trials, it starts with the component of study design, like Marissa mentioned. So incorporating all of the digital characteristics of the data that we have access to, the analytics and some of the predictive modeling to be able to better design the studies, moving it from there into digitally integrated workflows with the site. So less email and paper handoffs and PDFs and other things and more digital integration between the sponsor's tools and the site's tools and our vendors' tools to make sure that everyone's kind of looking at the same thing, avoid all of that rework. So all of that in the study setup phase to make it easier for everyone to kind of be a part of, of the study, pass those designs through. And then it goes right into the patient matching and the digital characteristics of being able to give sites the, the criteria for the study and the design for the study and help them with algorithms to look through their medical records, do that kind of pre-screening chart review exercise from the digital perspective before a clinical research coordinator has to get their hands on the records and actually review them. Narrow that funnel down ahead of time. And then on the data return side, as Marissa mentioned, the, the swivel chair activity of manually re-entering data into a system. It's the most ironic thing in the industry. It's actually, it's done almost 100% of the time, except in some of the, the new DACT and EMRDC models. And, and the irony of it is that it seems like it's done to improve the quality of data, or you would think at first it's done to improve the quality of data on the study, when actually it's one of the biggest detractors from the quality of the data on the study, which is the ultimate irony of it is that a manual task, which was basically entirely because there was no digital integration, has resulted in a significant part of what we call clinical trial execution today, on both the site and the sponsor side. So. Eliminating some of that, making this kind of, a, like you said, an integrated digital workflow for everyone really simplifies the whole pathway. And it makes it a lot easier for everyone to participate, a lot faster for all of these things to move through. And then I think to your other question about what is it that makes BMS participate in it initially is honestly, it was the size of the upcoming assets that we have in the portfolio. It is almost inconceivable that a company the size of BMS would be able to run that number of assets through the pipeline 
in the traditional methods. The sites wouldn't be able to handle the volume and wouldn't be able to handle the volume of the, the resource volume of the studies. They love the volume of the assets, can't handle the resource volume of the studies. BMS, that there's just no way to, to maintain that bolus of work over that period. And so to be able to support the number of molecules that we want to test in, in clinical trials, you have to find a different way. And so it has to be a way that's more efficient for us, more efficient for the sites. And the easiest part of that is taking out the low value manual work that's been going into this process for so many decades and replace it with digital integrations that allow everyone to focus on the higher value work that we all joined the medical research industry to do, but that you kind of lose in kind of getting stuck with the moving information back and forth as kind of your activity for the day. So it's really a, a necessary change that's going to have to be enabled to, to be able to support what we need to do from a research perspective. As you can see, you have two people who are passionate about Absolutely. clinical research and probably even more passionate about the site. And to me, at least, this concept came from the idea that if I could have, back in the day when I was at the site, if I could have patients identified, ready to go, I know the drug is going to be the best medicine for that particular patient at that particular time. And I know it may give that patient an opportunity that they may not otherwise have because the window of opportunity might have passed. I think that to me is the reason why B BMS is investing time and resources and developing partnerships because at the end of the day, clinical research is about advancing science. But if we don't have the patient at the right time at the right site, yes. then it is hard to advance science and save that particular patient's life. Yes. And when you think about from a site perspective and from a patient perspective, I will dream of a time where any patient that is confronted with not having the opportunity to have a therapy, but where a clinical trial could potentially impact their lives. Yes. I want any patient to have the ability to participate and not be constrained because A, the physicians don't know about the clinical trial, or because by the time we come through the EMRs or the, the charts, the patient window is gone. So I want to keep you on that thought for a moment. And you've answered probably slightly more than half of the question I'm going to ask, but I think you can probably add a couple other dimensions to it, which is when you're talking to a site and you're talking to a site about why should they want to implement, deploy, and integrate DACT as an approach within their particular workflow, how do you position it to them? As a former CEO of site, my biggest issue was, am I going to be able to make payroll this week? That was my biggest issue. And I couldn't hire people to actually do all the work that I need. So for me, it was enormously important to increase the number of clinical trials that I had for my side while sustaining or decreasing the resources or make them more productive. So here is an opportunity where we are eliminating so many steps 
that take so much resources from the site and really do not add value, which is during the feasibility. I would like to hear how many sites really, when they get the feasibility questionnaire, go to the EMR and comb through the EMR to say X number. I could tell you my PI used to say, oh, say 10. We wouldn't touch a single thing, right? But if you could, with the technology, identify even before the study or the site is initiated, and by the time you have your protocol, you have an idea of what is the likelihood that a patient might qualify, all of the work of patient identification is gone. Moreover, if you have technology that is used to do the contracting and the budgeting, by all means, I, I used to do paper-based negotiations and technology-based negotiation. I can tell you that with technology-based negotiation, there will be like three clicks, maybe 20 minutes back and forth with the sponsor and we'll be done. And the other one is the enormous amount of time that data entry takes. So if you could have a workflow that takes the data from the EMR that was approved by the IRB to be extracted and you know, dumped it into EDC or some other source and not having to touch a single thing. Not only does this process save a lot of time for the site in data entry, but think about how fewer queries we would have, how much cleaner the data will be. Right, So it's a win-win for the sponsors, a win-win for the site. And then we will actually be the sponsor of choice because that would have made the site do a lot more with the resources that we have. And we know they're not a lot. I'm definitely hearing they need to focus on just the study and whether their belief is that study will bring benefit to their patients. The rest of it actually almost disappears into right. the background a That's little right. bit. And in fact, their capacity for studies will actually increase substantially. Yeah. You know what I like about DACT is that I think for the first time in my 37 years in this industry, instead of asking the sites to add stuff into their routine, this system, this app, this whatever, this device, we're subtracting. And we're saying, you know what? Don't even think about our systems. It will be done for you. When I close my eyes and dream, <laughs> that's what I dream about. It's my favorite Marissa quote. <laughs> so Galen, I want to maybe just build on that same energy. You kind of talked about one compelling part was the business case was almost the capacity requirements of the organization given the set portfolio of emerging studies that were evolving, demanded thinking through new approaches. But now that you think about the results you're seeing, and you also think about further augmentation of that through other technologies that can get more integrated into this, how do you see this evolving from the sponsor's perspective going forward? We're going to see huge changes in the study design realm. So it's opening a lot of doors to new ways, new types of trial designs that we hadn't thought of or considered possible before. Um, we're seeing a lot of that with seamless trials coming up and other kinds of capabilities coming out of the rare disease space and some of the cell therapy studies where 
really trying to better design clinical programs to test the molecules you're trying to test rather than it being so leveraged against the operational perspectives of running the thing. And it's the same thing like Marissa said with the sites. It's, it should be about the, the molecule getting it to patients and collecting the data about that molecule. But the operational elephant of actually running any of these things has kind of taken over the determining factor of how you design any of it. And so making some of that simpler has allowed us to kind of rethink the way some of these things are designed because you don't have to worry about, well, I can't afford those resources. I'll never have the time or the effort to do that. So I can't put that in my study. You can rethink the way your study is designed and maybe you don't actually need that much input cost. And so there's a lot of that that goes into it to be able to leverage some of these, these kind of technologies and make them work for the science you're trying to achieve. I think a big part of that goes on the data collection side. For so long, we've been limited largely by how much data you could reasonably ask a site to collect on your behalf. Like you reach a certain point where the ask got preposterous and no site would be able to, to operationalize it for you. And because of that, you kind of over time, the trials that were more efficient for sites were the trials where you learned less and less science from those trials. That's very interesting. And now with kind of the, the advent of these new technologies, you can collect 10, 20, 50 times the amount of data that you would have collected in a previous study design because the site didn't have to put in all that effort to do manual work against it. And so you can start leveraging data and generate understandings and insights about these molecules that frankly were just not feasible before. It would have been an army of people and their full-time job to be able to collect these things at a site and would just never been practical. It's going to make a huge difference in terms of the types of scientific understanding you can get, the depth of that understanding, the breadth of hypotheses that you can test. It's really going to change the way you can actually adjudicate some of this research. It's really nice. That's super exciting. Let me ask you a couple of quick round robins <laughs> as we kind of kind of go through this. So that if um, you see a time that DECT will become the main vehicle for conducting U.S. clinical trials? Absolutely. At U.S. and globally, I think there's definitely going to be, in the next five to ten years, we're going to see this become the model. Across disease categories as well? For sure. I think so. And I think across phases as well, you're going to see it kind of pick up through, I mean, starting in phase three and four with your huge patient populations and then carrying down through two and one, you're going to see more and more of these technologies. That statement that Galen mentioned is completely true, even only if there are partners like Concert AI, right, that have access to the data and has the relationship with the sites where they can deploy technology and enable the site to actually do more work with fewer resources. And if we're talking about the one-season and two-season sites that are still doing clinical research with uh, no technology or basic technology, well, it's going to be hard for them to stay in business. You know, if I understand the performance of the current DAC solution, it is performing well at a narrow number of sites, but probably performing at a level that's ahead of comparable legacy solution, at least in terms of patient accruals and small end, but kind of there. Do you see that actually you could create a network of whatever size you would define that actually would function as that accelerator, that because of the nature of the technologies allow faster, better 
more competent, more predictable accruals, that in fact, you could kind of create that across different regions and set that up? Well, I think it's a team effort. I played volleyball and soccer for many years. And uh, I think you cannot score a goal unless you have, you know, your attackers, your midfielders, and your defensive players. And I think what happens here is we may have all the interest in the world, but obviously we're not going to create networks of sites and comb through their data, obviously, right? So we're going to need partners, partners like you and other disease areas and so on and so forth, partners in Europe. I mean, Europe is going to be a very different model than in the U.S., and we need to partner with the regulators and the data privacy folks and the patient advocacy to really help them understand how important this approach is to give a patient a chance to live in the case of cancer, right? So I think we need to hold hands with all the players in the life science sector. This is not a BMS thing by the way, right? So we started it because we truly believe that continuing to do clinical trials the way they we've been doing it for the last 100 years is not a viable alternative. It's not a viable business. So for us, it's more about a conviction that in this day and age, we have to use technology and we have to use analytics and uh, ML and all kinds of AI to actually help find that patient and give that patient a chance. And for that, we're going to have to continue to work with the regulators, with partners, with patient advocacy groups, with privacy groups uh, to, to figure out how we're going to proceed. Because not proceeding shouldn't be an option, shouldn't be an option for the patient. If we had a patient sitting here at the table on the fourth side of our square, for instance, how would you express to them why they should care and kind of what the promise is? Because I'm hearing deep patient commitment throughout all of the statements. But sometimes, you know, the, the language we would use to express it to them sometimes is going to be have to be a little bit different. than. Yeah. Well, for me, it's super personal because... My dad died of lung cancer. My mom died of lung cancer. My sister died of colorectal cancer. So if today I could have any of them living, I think I would push them to ask for that clinical trial alternative. What people don't know is that about 56% of patients don't know that there is a trial and don't have access to a local trial. And in community setting, that number is even higher. So first and foremost, I will say to the patient, look for those answers. Demand those answers. It's your life. Fight for it. The second thing that I would say is, this is a numbers game, and you have to be able to contact a lot of people. I remember my sister-in-law, she had an army of people trying to look in clinicaltrials.gov, trying to call sites around, physicians around, and so on and so forth. And that shouldn't be that difficult, right? The patient should know 
whether there is a trial in their community. And although one could say, well, but it, that's posted in clinicaltrials.gov, patients don't have the time nor the knowledge to actually go in and finding themselves. So I think we have a responsibility as an industry to help take the extra work out of the equation because just the diagnosis itself, and I lived it with my sister, just the diagnosis itself was such a burden that it kind of blocks you from thinking about anything else. I think for me it was in, in working in the clinic setting for so many years, there were times when you knew that the drugs available in standard of care weren't going to work for that patient. And there were times when we looked into the clinical trials and just for operational and resource reasons, couldn't onboard them. And so you were knowingly providing substandard care than you would have preferred to provide. And that's super disheartening in the medical profession to like, be there to treat disease and then to know that you could treat it better, but something silly like whether or not they could onboard another study or the time it would take for site activation or whatever else gets in the way of providing optimal care. Like that was a really unfortunate. So I think to me it was it was really about the kind of speeding up the the ability to onboard those medicines as therapies and then the ability to get those medicines in the commercial space to as many patients as possible. Like speeding up that cycle time is so valuable because to Marissa's point earlier, like people are getting missed. And once that window is gone, that window can be, can be gone forever. So I think that is huge to me is like, we need to start using these as therapeutic alternatives because too many patients are suffering from the inability to treat them with available treatments. Patients don't know that there is almost like two sides of the equation. They go to an institution and there is the medical practice. And then there's the other side, which is the clinical research practice. And they have different type of qualified staff. And those two very rarely see each other. They have different workflows. They have So if you're a patient and you go for a treatment, you would think that that doctor or team of doctors will have access to all the information that they need to say, okay, these therapies might work, but there's also this clinical trial ongoing somewhere in our institution. And that doesn't happen. Those two worlds really connect. And what you guys have done so effectively is connect those two worlds so then a patient who is eligible for a, a clinical trial will show at the physician's office, right, as a potential patient to be enrolled in a clinical trial. So it's almost like we force the integration of those two worlds yes. so the patients don't get missed. Well. I almost feel that um, the, these were very passionate calls to action as well as calls to DACT uh, in terms of what could be provided. I really want to thank you for 
taking the time to be here today and you know bring these perspectives together, both a little bit of looking forward, looking where we are and looking back and setting a context for why we absolutely have to change. Thank you for inviting us. And I hope this is the beginning of the discussion. Absolutely. And not the end of the discussion. Of course it is. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Again, I want to thank Galen Ritter and Marissa Coe for joining me in the Concert AI podcast room here in Cambridge, Massachusetts. The community has historically had much more modest trial participation rates, in part because of the burden and the complexity of running clinical research in settings that are largely standard of care clinically focused. But now with the advent of AI-powered patient identification tools and semi-automated data solutions, such as the Digital Accelerated Clinical Trial Solution being deployed by BMS in their collaboration and partnership with Concert AI, we can actually lower the burden on the patient and the site for actually running a wider array of clinical trial types and on the same resource research base, increase the number of clinical trials that that particular site can entertain making available to its patients. These are super important transitions. They're part of FDA imperatives to make sure that the trial population appears more and closer to the ultimate population receiving these drugs, and they make needed medicines that are being tested more available across a wider array of settings and therefore to a greater number of patients generally. Thank you again for tuning into this podcast, and we hope you'll join us again next month. To all those who have listened, good morning, good afternoon, and evening.